You're listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message at 11 a.m. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. To learn more, visit mtcarmeldemarest.com or facebook.com forward slash mtcarmeldemarest. Thanks for listening. Luke chapter 10, verses 29 through 37. I do want to let parents and guardians know that the subject of today's sermon is abortion. Um, And I understand completely if you need to uh, take your uh, little ones out, you, you will not offend me at all. Luke chapter 10, verses 29 through 37, that's in the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible, please take the Bible in front of you, use the index, uh, find the scriptures. We want you to search the scriptures with us uh, as I preach the word. And if you don't have a Bible at home, please take that Bible home with you. We want to equip you with God's word. And um, inside your bulletin, there's an insert inside that insert. uh, There's some fill in the blanks that you can fill in as we go along uh, so that you can better retain the message and then if you have a smartphone and you've downloaded the Version Bible app, Y-O-U version, uh, you can go to the More tab, tap Events, find Mount Carmel Baptist Church, and then click on today's sermon title, uh, and there will be a bunch of notes, quotes, and references that you can fill in uh, and, and save on your phone. And again, I do want to thank all of those who have signed up and continue to pray as a part of my sermon prep prayer team. Those prayers are felt and very much appreciated. And if you would like to uh, continue or to add your name to that list and be a part of that team, uh, there at the table in the foyer, you can sign up. Uh, You pick an an hour uh, during my sermon prep uh, time. You're not praying the whole hour, just at some point during that hour. uh, If you'll just stop to pray for me and Sunday sermon, uh, it would be greatly appreciated. But you can sign up for that at the back as well. Luke chapter 10, verses 29 through 37. I want to preach to you a message I've entitled, Won't You Be My Neighbor? Won't You Be My Neighbor? Since 1984, many Southern Baptist churches have recognized the third Sunday of January as Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. I have no desire to judge women who have had an abortion, neither do I desire to judge men responsible for most unwanted pregnancies who have supported or even pressured women to have an abortion. I have one message to them, but with God there is forgiveness, and there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Jesus, God's Son, died for all our sins and rose again to forgive us and offer us new life. You don't have to live in shame and regret. Jesus can give to you through the Holy Spirit a power of self-control. And while Christians have often failed to witness to this in our lives, Jesus is building a church that will not judge you but offer you hope Love, peace, joy, and freedom. This is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. I am here to warn Christians 
about the campaign of genocide happening on our watch and to inform your consciences with Jesus' teaching. According to PlannedParenthood.org, you can get this on their website. I'm not making up these statistics. You go to PlannedParenthood.org, scroll all the way down to the bottom, click Annual Reports. They don't give it to you on that page. Click that Annual Report down. You can download the Annual Report from 2018 to 2019. On their website, they say that 4% of their services are for abortion. That's one of the talking points of those who are pro-choice, that it's a very small number of the services that Planned Parenthood provides. What they don't tell you is that small number constitutes 345,672 abortions that happened between the year 2018 and 2019. I want to say that one more time. That 4% translates to 345,672 abortions happening in America on our watch. And in case you haven't figured it out, I submit this to you with gentleness and respect. Defunding Planned Parenthood won't fix it. This is just one provider of abortion services. Today, Due to advances in genetics and DNA, virtually no one denies that the fetus is human. Biologically, genetically, scientifically human. The debate is not whether the fetus is human. And here's the debate, and Christians, please follow with me. The question is, is the fetus a person? The question becomes, what makes a person? What constitutes personhood. This question has a flaw in it. Once personhood is separated from life, once personhood is separated from biology, no one can agree on how to define personhood. There is no consensus. Is it when the fetus exhibits neural activity, brain waves, feels pain, achieves a certain level of cognitive function, consciousness, self-awareness, the capacity to reason, sophisticated communication, the ability to make choices, solving complex problems, self-motivation, the desire to live, and the list goes on and on. If the child is born, will the, the child be neglected or live in poverty? Which abilities or functions count in personhood? That is not the question that any scientist can ever answer. And my contention is, it's the wrong question. In today's Bible passage, a lawyer, an expert of Old Testament law, publicly confronts Jesus, the master teacher, to confound him and embarrass him publicly. He asked Jesus... Uh, two questions, but the first question is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus being savvy to what the lawyer wants him to say, Jesus responds by telling the lawyer, the answer is in the law. So as a lawyer, what does the law say? He puts it right back on the lawyer. And essentially the lawyer says to love God and love your neighbor. And Jesus says, you've answered correctly. But instead of the lawyer asking, how can I do this? 
I'm not able to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind, or to love my neighbor as I love myself. The lawyer doesn't do this. He doesn't ask for help. Instead, the lawyer, it says in the text, tries to justify himself. He tries to defend his position. He tries to defend that he's doing the right thing. And so he asked Jesus a second question. Jesus, who is my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? He's asking, think about it, just how far does my love have to extend? That's the question. Who do I have to love? Who do I have to respect? For the Jews in this context, he's saying, does my love extend to people I don't know? Does my love extend to non-Jews? Does my love extend to Roman oppressors? Does my love extend to notorious sinners? And Jesus, again, being savvy to what he's trying to get at, he doesn't answer the question directly, but he tells them a story. Let's look at Luke chapter 10, just verse 29 and 30. Again, this is what I just said about the lawyer, but the lawyer wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus took up the question, I'll take that, and said this, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. Leaving him half dead. Dead. The first thing that I want you to note here, I want you to see four things just about this man and what Jesus says about the man and what Jesus doesn't say about the man. This man is nameless. Nameless. He's just a man. We do not know his race. We may safely assume he is a Jewish man considering the context and it does seem to serve the story better later. But Jesus doesn't stress it. We do not know the man's reason for traveling. He is a nameless man. He is also victimized. He's victimized. He's not responsible for his plight. He fell among the thieves. He is a victim, not a perpetrator. Notice they leave him naked. They strip him of everything. He has no money. He has no resources. He has nothing to offer, repay, or contribute to any expense he may have. And then he is half dead. You know what the Greek of this term is? Half dead. Literally half dead. He has 50-50 odds of living. He has 50-50 odds of recovery. He has 50-50 odds of maybe getting better and becoming something. He has 50-50 odds that he might be self-sustaining and may contribute to society, but he may not. He's half 
dead. Here's the point that I want you to take away from this. Write it down. The man could not be a neighbor. The man could not be a neighbor. The man can't make himself a neighbor. He cannot locate himself. He cannot call out. He's voiceless. He cannot position himself beside you to bring awareness. He is incapacitated. And can I take it one step forward? While he is clearly not a neighbor, is he even a person? He's unconscious. He doesn't seem to be exercising thought. He may be temporary comatose. He's not functioning rationally. Is the man a person? Should he be helped? Should he be neighbored? Let's read Luke 10.31. Luke 10.31 says, A priest happened to be going down the road when he saw him, the half-dead man, he passed by on the other side. Verse 32, In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now the priest, they ministered in the Jewish religious temple, and the Levites were assistants to priests and did maintenance in the temple. If it may help you to think about it, think of it like a pastor, an associate pastor. <laughs> okay? We would expect a pastor or an associate pastor to help a half-dead man. But catch this, they see the same thing, and what do they do? They pass by. They see and pass by. They see and pass by. They are aware. Each sees the exact same nameless, victimized, naked, half-dead man, but they do nothing. The text does not give us their motivation. We do not know why they do nothing. They simply avoid inserting themselves even though they were geographically and socially close to the man. Write this down. The priest and Levite would not be a neighbor. They would not be a neighbor. The priest and Levite would not be a neighbor. They would not neighbor themselves. Although they were close in proximity, do you catch this? Although they, were, although they shared the same social location, all three men were probably Jews. They had many reasons to identify with one another. The priest and Levite did not neighbor themselves. They did not put themselves to this other man's availability. We often hear abortion defended for two reasons. Rape and the life of a mother being in jeopardy. It turns out that, two, that these two are two of the least common reasons women have abortions in the United States. According to a 2004 Guttmacher Institute, which is affiliated with Planned Parenthood, you can, you can Google this yourself, research article, the number one reason women have abortion is, quote, Having a baby would dramatically interfere with their education, work, or ability to care for their dependents, or they cannot afford a baby at the time. 
I'm not here to, def- to fight or dispute that. We'll discuss the church's responsibility in that in a bit. It's sometimes said that if you're against abortion, which I am, then just don't have one. Don't peddle it. But don't impose your views on others. That's, that's a very common mantra in our day. Just keep it to yourself. Keep this as a matter of privacy. However, I need to explain this from the Christian's perspective. To see this and pass by is something we cannot do. We can't just see it and pass by. Christians must speak out on this issue. And it's not because we feel offended. It's not because we have some cherished traditional belief or that we're threatened. We're not but because we have genuine compassion for those who are trapped in destructive ideas. We're not saying that a woman has no right as much as we're saying she is not alone. There is an unborn child. To insist on a woman's right to privacy with abortion is to insist that the pregnant woman really is alone. She's not. There is a child. We refuse the premise. Abortion is unjustifiable killing. It should be illegal for the sake of the innocent and voiceless unborn. While laws against abortion will not eliminate it since illegal means will be available, laws can help restrict and restrain its occurrence. And also, church, listen to this. A woman should not be made to feel alone because she should know that the church is with her. We're with you. The church should and must stand by every woman. And we'll discuss that more. But remember this. Remember, once the concept of personhood is detached from life or biology, it is no longer objective. We have to come up with a definition. And then that means, here is the slippery slope argument, I know, but listen, anyone at any stage of life can be demoted of the status of a non-person. It's not just about abortion. It's about which worldview will shape our society. Christians, you need to speak up and let your voice be known in a compassionate, gracious way. So is there any help? Is there any hope? There is. Look at verses 33 through 37 from a very unlikely source. Ready? But a Samaritan on his journey came up to him, the half-dead man. And when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. (laughs) This is amazing. The Samaritans, if you don't know, were a mixed race of Jews and pagans. 
And those Jews with full Jewish heritage looked down on the Samaritans with contempt. Remember, think about this, the priest sees and does what? Passes by. The Levite sees and passes by. But it's amazing, the Samaritan sees the exact same nameless, victimized, naked, half-dead man and is moved with compassion. They see the exact same thing. They see and pass by. They see and pass by. He sees and has compassion. What's the difference? What made the difference? The Samaritan neighbored himself. When the others passed by on the other side, the Samaritan came down, approached him, located himself with the man. The Samaritan neighbored himself to the man. Write it down. The Samaritan was a neighbor. The Samaritan was a neighbor. The Samaritan neighbored himself, not at minimal cost, but at great cost. The Samaritan got down in the dirt, and the dirt, the grom, the filth, the blood, and put his hands in that man's wounds and applied medicinal oil and wine. That Samaritan lifted him up on his shoulders, threw him over his donkey, mind you, put him in a, on a donkey while the Samaritan walked back through the dangerous path where the robbers were. Do you catch that? The Samaritan paid money to an innkeeper for that man's extended say. Two denarii were worth two Roman silver coins, which was two days of wages. The Samaritan gave two days of his own wages to the innkeeper. This was probably worth two months of room and board for this man. The Samaritan, and you would think, okay, surely this guy has done enough. Notice what he does. He does not regard his duty as done when he brought the man to the shelter. The Samaritan goes even further to pledge to the innkeeper that any further costs he incurred, he would take care of. Jesus does not tell us what happens to the half-dead man. Does he get better? We don't know. Does he become self-sufficient? We don't know. Does the Samaritan for the rest of his life drop by an inn on the way to Jericho to check on him and give him money? We do not know. But could be the case. So what's the point? What does that story have to do with you and I in this abortion debate? You've got to see the end of verses 36 and 37 when Jesus gives his answer to the question to God. Let's look at it, verse 36. Jesus reverses the question and the recipient. He now asks the lawyer a question after this story. He says this, Which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Now, church, it's subtle, because you've heard this story so many times that we missed what Jesus is saying. He's not saying what you think he's saying. He reverses the question. The original question was what? What did the lawyer ask? 
who is my neighbor? And Jesus asked a different question. He asked a more fundamental question. He's saying this, who became a neighbor? Who became a neighbor? Who neighbored? Not who is my neighbor, but who is a neighbor fundamentally. Did you see that? Not what constitutes a neighbor, what constitutes me as a neighbor. He gets personal. He gets in the man's face. What makes you a neighbor? Let's see the man's reply. He can't bring himself to say he's Samaritan. So notice what he does. Verse 37, here's what he says. The one who showed mercy on him. The one who showed mercy. Jesus said, go and do the same. Catch what Jesus is saying here. It's not about whether you're connected to them. Right? It had nothing to do with geographical placement or social identification. None of those things. You know what Jesus is saying? Catch this, church. It takes a neighbor to know a neighbor. It takes a neighbor to know a neighbor. The Samaritan himself was a neighbor. So when he saw a man in need, what did he do? He neighbored himself. He put himself where that man was. It wasn't about geography. It wasn't about social location. All three men saw the exact same nameless, victimized, naked, half-dead man. But only one man saw a neighbor. Did you catch that? Only one man saw a neighbor. The priests and Levites weren't neighbors because they didn't see the half-dead man as what? A neighbor. Did you catch it? They weren't neighbors because they didn't see a neighbor. The Samaritan was a neighbor because he saw a neighbor. If you have the heart of a neighbor, you will see neighbors. What does that mean? When we see the fetus, we see a neighbor. I see a neighbor. That's what we got to stop looking at. Is it a person or not? Who cares? That's my neighbor. We've made it about their rights. And what we don't realize, we're the ones ultimately being dehumanized. We can't be neighbors to the most, the most people who need us the most. That's us. You've asked the wrong question. It's not about them. Are we neighbors anymore? We're not. And here's the question. Here's the big question. Is stop asking whether it's a life and a person. It's this. Write it down. Will you be a neighbor to the unborn? Because once you settle that, it doesn't matter about all the functions or abilities, does it? A nameless, victimized, naked, has nothing to offer you, may get up, get better, and hate you the rest of your life. Half dead, 50-50 odds of becoming somebody doesn't matter anymore. Do you catch it? You get what I'm saying? None of those functions mattered anymore because neighbors don't care. Where does that kind of love come from? 
in Jesus' blood. The cross defines God's mercy and love. God became a fetus. Isn't that amazing? And then shed his own blood for our sins and to show us what it means to be a neighbor. He identified with us. I'm in heaven, you're on earth. The ge geographical distance is amazing. Social location, he is holy. We're sinful, and yet he neighbored himself to us. Many of us hate him still, and he still died. Many of us aren't worth redemption, and he still died. Church, will you pray in Jesus' name? Father, make me a neighbor to the unborn. Make me a neighbor to the unborn. And let me go ahead and consider what all, what all may that entail. If we pray, God, make us a neighbor to the unborn, what might happen? It would be good and right if the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade today. And if it were overturned today, given the statistics, is Mount Carmel prepared to accept full responsibility for the effects of a more restrictive abortion policy? We cannot create a culture in which illegal backstreet abortions become common. That's not what we want either, if we're really being a neighbor. Church, we are Jesus' body, and so we say with Jesus, let the little children come to me. Right? Let them come. And so what does that mean? Sadly, we have developed a stigma for sins linked to sexuality. We need God's help not to judge people's actions leading to pregnancy, but to celebrate children as a gift, a blessing to our church, regardless of the circumstances. Let the little children come to me. They're precious, period. End of question. Are we prepared to care for and to contribute financially to the possible hundreds of mothers in our own community, Habersham, for whom abortion is no longer a legal option? Are we prepared to counsel women with an unplanned pregnancy, finding accommodations for mothers both before, during, and after their child's birth, help them secure employment, give financial help, and even offering to raise these children after they are born. Is that not what the Samaritan did? Hey, and I'll come back and check up on you. We have to have that Samaritan-like quality of love. We go all the way through every stage if it means. This won't be for a year or two. It may be a lifetime of loving, supportive involvement. If our, if our prayers are answered, are you really ready for those prayers to be answered? And the expense that it'll cost us time, energy, and resources because we have to stand with mother and child and walk all the way. In a powerful essay about his son, Eddie, born with Down syndrome, Simon Barnes writes, so Eddie was born. And I have spent the subsequent five years living with him. Not living with Down syndrome, 
What a ridiculous idea, living with Eddie, who is my boy. And that really is the beginning and the end of it and the day-to-day routine of it. I don't have a child with Down syndrome. I am Eddie's father. There is a huge difference between those two things. As Barnes says, a name makes all the difference. The unborn are not just fetuses. And while I contend they are persons, they are something even more blessed and glorious. The unborn are our neighbors. They're our neighbors. So will you be their neighbor? Thanks for listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. Please join us this Sunday at 11 a.m. To plan your visit, go to mtcarmeldemarest.com.